Thank you very much, Danny, Carlos, and Kim. That was beautiful. And happy Sabbath, everyone, and welcome to Advent Hope. It's good to see all of you here. Before I start, I'd like to open up with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Sabbath day. And thank you for bringing each one of us here on this Sabbath. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us and that we would receive the things of the Lord and that our minds would be drawn closer to you and that when we leave this place, we, we would be closer to you. So this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Our title for today is The Seven Last Plagues and the Fit Man. And I was at Eric's house last night, and uh, we talked a little bit about what it meant to be a fit man. And I, um, he and I agreed that in order to, to be spiritually fit, men and women for God, that we should be physically fit as well, amen? And so Eric rebuked me last night in various ways. However... Um, seriously, the, if we are going to be spiritually fit, men and women for God, we will um, be physically fit in the way we exercise, the way we eat, everything. Um, so that's just sort of an aside from what Eric was talking about. Um, how many of you have studied Revelation chapter 15? Okay, very good. And Revelation chapter 15 perhaps is not talked about as much as some of the other chapters in Revelation. Now, last week we heard about Revelation chapter 14 from Lewis Walton. This week we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15 is very interesting because it, it can be broken into two parts. And it's you have the seven last plagues, you have God's people in heaven, and it's interesting in that you start off with the seven last plagues, you end with the seven last plagues, and in the middle, it talks about the people of God. And we're going to look a little bit later on as to why John separated the seven last plagues from God's people and then comes back to the seven last plagues again later on in that same chapter. Revelation chapter 15, We're starting in verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, this is something that John has not seen yet. He's seen everything up through Revelation chapter 14, and now he sees the seven last plagues coming. And notice how he describes it. He describes the seven last plagues as great and marvelous. Now, I'm not so sure that if we are alive to see the seven last plagues that we will think that they're great and marvelous. I think they're going to be rather fearful. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the fearful you know, pouring out of the seven last plagues and so forth. But what John sees catches his attention. And it's worth noting and he notes it in the first verse of Revelation chapter 15. After he has gone through Revelation chapter 14, given the three angels' messages, seen the 144,000 on Mount Zion, now he sees the seven last plagues. And he, 
then verse 2, he jumps to a different scene, and we're going to skip that for now. And then coming back to verse 5, he comes back to the seven last plagues. After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. What are these seven last plagues that John is talking about here in Revelation chapter 15? Why would he call them great and marvelous? Well, Revelation chapter 16 gives us a detailed explanation of the seven last plagues, and we are not going to go through Revelation chapter 16 today. The only thing that I will point out is that in the first two verses of Revelation chapter 16, we see who the seven last plagues are poured out upon. The seven last plagues are poured out upon the wicked. They are poured out upon those who receive the mark of the beast. And you can see that at the end of verse 2, those who have the mark of the beast and upon them which worshiped his image. And we know that this is talking about Revelation chapter 13, the, the mark of the beast, the image. And as you study Revelation 13, you understand what the mark of the beast is. And so as you see the end result of those who received the mark of the beast, it would seem, I mean, what the scripture is suggesting to us is receiving the mark of the beast is not a good idea. If you receive the mark of the beast, you're going to get the seven last plagues. So I would highly encourage you um, to study the Bible and find out what the mark of the beast is and how to avoid receiving it. And that's part of what we're going to be looking at today. And we're not going to spend too much more time talking about the seven last plagues. You can read about them, um, men receiving marks and sores and the earth being scorched with heat, water being turned to blood. It doesn't sound like a very good time for those who are receiving them. And so I would just encourage you, as you study the character of the people who receive the mark of the beast, you see a pattern of compromise that has developed in their lives through through time, even just in little things. And so I, I would challenge you, don't compromise. Stand firm even on the little things that God convicts you on, even now. <clears throat> now, what I want to take a look at, especially in the context of the seven last plagues, is found in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 15. Verse 8 of Revelation chapter 15. And here we're talking about these plagues being poured out. And this is an intriguing verse to me, just as verse 1 was. In verse 1, John calls the seven last plagues what he sees great and marvelous. Now notice verse 8. He says, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now, what kind of sense does that make? The temple of God being filled with the glory of God while the plagues were being poured out. What does that mean? And what is John talking about? Why would the glory of God fill his temple while the plagues were being poured out upon the wicked? 
we understand that the glory of God from Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, represents his character. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And he says, I will make all my goodness, my mercy, my long suffering pass before you. And so here we see, while the seven last plagues are being poured out, the glory of God or his character fills his temple. And it makes us wonder. So his goodness, his mercy, his long suffering is filling his temple while he's pouring out plagues on the wicked. How does that make sense? Well, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. This will give us a description of an event in the Old Testament where something very similar to Revelation chapter 15, verse 8, takes place. Now, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, this is speaking of the dedication of the temple that Solomon built. <clears throat> Starting in verse 9 of 1 Kings chapter 8. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand a minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Notice the similarity from 1 Kings chapter 8 with Revelation 15 verse 8. Smoke fills the house of the Lord, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And we ask ourselves the question, why does the smoke of the glory of the Lord fill God's house in 1 Kings chapter 8. Well, there's two, there could be two reasons. One, you have the two tables of stone, representative of the law of God, also representative of his character, of his glory. And those two tables of stone, his law, are placed in the ark. But also notice what happens. When the priests come out of, and here it says the holy place, but we know it's talking about the most holy place because we know the Ark of the Covenant's in the most holy place. So when the priest comes out of the most holy place back to the first apartment, it represents that a work has been finished in the most holy place. God's law, his character, has been placed in the Ark, and now the high priest comes to the door of the first apartment and the, his glory, his character, fills the temple. So what is this talking about? These priests in 1 Kings chapter 8, who are they representative of? These, this is the high priest who was symbolic of Jesus, our high priest. And it's symbolic of Jesus, our high priest, finishing his work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, coming to the door of the first apartment and smoke filling the temple of God. And so that's helping us to understand what's happening in Revelation chapter 15, verse 8. Revelation chapter 15, verse 8 is telling us the seven last plagues are being poured out and at the same time, 
something else very significant in heaven has happened. Jesus has finished a phase of his work that he has been doing since 1844. He's coming out of the most holy place to the first apartment. And so the question we have is, what significance does that have for us? When Jesus finishes his work in the most holy place, and his glory fills the temple of the Lord, what happens next? There's an interesting quote by Ellen White found in Spalding and McGann collection, page 2, where she talks about this scene, about the, the high priest coming to the door of the first apartment. She says, Then I saw that Jesus' work in the sanctuary, sanctuary will soon be finished. And after his work there is finished, he will come to the door of the first apartment. So that's what we saw in 1 Kings chapter 8. He will confess the sins of Israel upon the head of the scapegoat. Then he will put on the garments of vengeance. Then the plagues will come upon the wicked. So notice the connection. The priest comes to the door of the first apartment. The plagues come upon the wicked. The plagues do not come till Jesus puts on that garment and takes his place upon the great white, white club. Then while the plagues are falling, the scapegoat is being led away. He makes a mighty struggle to escape, but he is held fast. Those are our song today, opening hymn. He is held fast by the hand that leads him. If he should effect his escape, Israel would lose their lives. I saw that it would take time to lead away the scapegoat into the land of forgetfulness after the sins were put on his head. So notice what we see here. Jesus comes to the door of the first apartment, and in Revelation 15, verse 8, the smoke from the glory of the Lord fills the temple because his work has been finished there. And then Jesus places the sins of God's people under the head of the scapegoat. So what's happened? Jesus has blotted out the sins of God's people. He's made the atonement, the final atonement. And now he confesses his sins unto the people, unto the scapegoat, the sin of God's people unto the scapegoat. And notice what is said here. While the plagues are falling, the scapegoat is being led away. He makes a mighty struggle to escape, but he is held fast by the hand that leads him. And when Jesus finishes his work in the heavenly sanctuary, is that the end of the work that was done on the Day of Atonement? When Jesus, when the, or when the high priest in the sanctuary system in the past blotted out the sins, confessed the sins of God's people, and then the sins were placed on the scapegoat. Was that it? Or was there something else that was to take place? Well, let's go to Leviticus chapter 16. This will give us a more complete understanding of this scapegoat and what is to happen to this scapegoat after Jesus comes to the door of the first apartment. And we're going to look first at Leviticus chapter 16, verses 7 through 10, and then verses 20 through 22. And this is speaking of Aaron the high priest. 
he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for his sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for his scapegoat into the wilderness. So here we see in the sanctuary service there's two, two goats. One goat is sacrificed. The other goat is made a scapegoat and led away. We know that the, the goat that is sacrificed is symbolic of Jesus and the sacrifice for us. We know that the scapegoat is symbolic of Satan and him bearing the sins of God's people being led away. Now notice verse 20 through 22. What happens to the scapegoat? When he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place in the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron, who is the high priest, shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. <clears throat> so what happens to the scapegoat after the high priest confesses the sins onto the scapegoat? What happens? The scapegoat is led away by a fit man. So when Jesus confesses the sins unto Satan, when he makes the final atonement and blots out the sins of God's people, the end of Satan is not yet. He is to be led away by a fit man. And I want to underscore this quote again. While the plagues are falling, the scapegoat is being led away. He makes a mighty struggle to escape, but he is held fast by the hand that leads him. So the scapegoat is held fast and is being led away by a fit man. Now this fit man cannot be Jesus because Jesus is the high priest who confesses the sins onto the scapegoat. So it must be someone else who takes Satan away, who leads him symbolically by the hand holding Satan fast during these seven last plagues. And so we ask ourselves the question, who is this fit man that leads Satan into the land of forgetfulness? <clears throat> well, that's where Revelation chapter 15 comes back into the picture. Revelation chapter 15. You wonder, when you read this chapter, the connection between God's people standing in heaven and the seven last plagues. And it seems like John's jumping around, but he's really not. Verses 2 through 4 help us to understand a little bit more completely. Who is this fit man that leads Satan into the land of forgetfulness? <clears throat> and I really like verse 2. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark. So you, you don't have to receive the mark of the beast. You can gain the victory over the mark of the beast, over the image, over the, over the number of his name. And here we see 
the people who had gotten the victory over the beast. And they stood on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And notice verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Why would God's people sing the song of Moses and the, and the Lamb in heaven? Who was Moses? Moses, of course, was the leader of Israel. He led them through the wilderness. But more importantly, or more significantly in relation to this, this passage, Moses was the leader of Israel when they were delivered out of Egypt, when they were delivered from the plagues, and when they went through the Red Sea. So if you read in Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites sing the song of Moses after they pass through the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army have been destroyed in the Red Sea after the Israelites had safely passed through. But even before that, they had been spared of the plagues that had fallen upon the Egyptians. Likewise, God's people here in Revelation chapter 15 have been spared the seven last plagues. So John starts off by saying, here's the seven last plagues that's coming, but wait, here's the people that were delivered from the seven last plagues. You don't have to receive it. And they are singing the song of Moses. It's a song of deliverance. And when we get to heaven, we will certainly be singing a song of deliverance of how God delivered us. <clears throat> and they also sing the song of the Lamb. And we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And they sing the song of the Lamb because He is the Redeemer. He is the one who took away their sin. He is the one who delivered them ultimately. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the true leader of spiritual Israel. And so those who are delivered from the seven last plagues, those who are saved, will be singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And here's what they say in this song. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Now notice verse 4 very carefully. This is the song of Moses and the Lamb. Here's what they're saying. Who shall not fear thee? Does that sound familiar? Fear God. Who shall not glorify thee? Fear God, give glory to him. For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. Remember Revelation 14:7, Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. For thy judgments are made manifest. The hour of God's judgment has come. These are people who stood through the hour of God's judgment. And they are singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, which is a song of deliverance, and they are reciting in a question form the message of the three angels of Revelation 14. So the people who are delivered from the seven last plagues are the people who live the experience of the three angels' messages. Those who stand in heaven on the sea of glass, who sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, are the ones who live and give and experience the three angels' messages. <clears throat> but notice the end of verse 4. The end of verse 4 of Revelation chapter 15, they say, For thy judgments are made manifest. How are God's judgments made manifest? 
How are God's judgments made manifest? Well, based on Revelation chapter 15 and 16, it would seem to indicate that his judgments are made manifest by the pouring out of the seven last plagues upon those who are the wicked, those who have received the mark of the beast. And that is the most primary application of Revelation chapter 15. However, the Bible gives us some clues that God's judgments are made manifest in a more significant way even than the plagues being poured out upon the wicked. So I want us to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The righteous are, are saying in heaven, Thy judgments are made manifest. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Let me ask you then, what, based on Second Thessalonians chapter 1, is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God? Remember in Revelation, Revelation 15, the righteous are saying, your judgments have been made manifest. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see that um, the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God is God's people. Specifically, God's people who have patience, who have faith, and who endure persecutions and tribulations. Does that sound familiar? Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's all here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. And what the Bible is teaching us is that God can righteously pour out his judgments upon the wicked because he has a group of people who manifest patience, faith, and endurance through all the tribulations and persecutions that they go through. So God can point to Satan and say, the seven last plagues are falling, and here's my people. Look at them. They are enduring every type of tribulation that you could imagine. They are suffering every persecution that you could throw at them, but look at them. They have patience. They have faith. They keep the commandments of God. They have the same quality of faith that I have. And in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, <clears throat> Paul brings out this concept a little bit further. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And of course, this one mind we know to be the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Then in verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. So what Philippians is telling us is 
when our adversaries come at us to try to shake us, to try to terrify us, when we stand fast, this is a token of perdition to the wicked. Now, how could this be? How could the righteous be a manifest token of the righteous judgments of God? Well, John 16, verse 11, helps us to understand this a little bit more completely. <clears throat> this talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then it says, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Based on Revelation chapter 15, when is the prince of this world being judged? The prince of this world is being judged during the seven last plagues when the plagues are being poured out and the fit man, God's people, who stand on the sea of glass, are holding fast Satan and leading him to the land of forgetfulness slowly but surely. And so, the righteous are a manifest token of the judgments of God as they hold fast to Satan and lead him by the hand into the wilderness. And if you look at John chapter 16, it says of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. But in John 14:30, Jesus says of himself, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Notice what Ellen White says in The Faith I Live By, page 23. And she quotes John 14:30. The prince of this world cometh, said Jesus, and hath nothing in me. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. So it may be with us. So during the seven last plagues, when Satan comes at the righteous with everything he has, there's nothing in them. And this is the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God because this is the last point of controversy in the great controversy. Satan still says fallen humanity cannot keep the law of God. But Jesus says, yes, they can. Here they are. They're leading you out into the land of forgetfulness. They are my fit people that have their hands firmly around you, and there's nothing that you can do to shake them. And I can only imagine how Satan will feel during the seven last plagues as he sees these judgments being poured out upon the wicked, and he knows that this is his last chance. He's being led away. His end has almost come. But he knows that if he can just get God's people to sin once, he will be delivered. Notice it says, if he should effect his escape, Israel would lose their lives. And so he comes at the righteous with everything he has. He'll take away every earthly support, perhaps all of your friends, your support system, your money, anything he can do. And just like Job, he'll take everything away except your life. But just like Job and just like Jesus, he will not be able to find anything in you. And he will be led away firmly into the wilderness. And so this is the role. This is how we, as God's people in these last days, can fulfill the purpose of God to be spiritually fit men and women to lead Satan into the land of forgetfulness. And I pray that all of us here are developing our lives each and every day with the Lord so that we will be spiritually fit men and women for the Lord 
So when the seven last plagues are being poured out, we have nothing to be afraid of. The wicked, they receive all the terrible things that the seven last plagues have to offer, but yet we have Mount Zion to look forward to. We have a time to look forward to when we can sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, when we can sing the song of deliverance, how God has delivered us from the seven last plagues. And we won't be talking about what we have done. We will be talking about what Jesus did in us and for us. And it's only through his strength, through his grace, that we can even think about leading Satan into the land of forgetfulness. And some of you here today may be thinking, how can I possibly be part of that people, part of that fit group of people that could lead Satan into the land of forgetfulness? Because it seems like today when Satan comes at me with not even his half-best temptation, I fall flat on my face. What's, what's wrong with me? How, how can I be part of that special group of people? Well, notice that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that verse that we read, the patience and the faith of God's people through the tribulations and, and persecutions that it, they endured. How do you endure tribulations and persecutions? Well, Hebrews 12:1, which we all know, Hebrews 12:1 and 2, is everything we ever need to know in our Christian experience. This tells us how we can be spiritually fit men and women for God. <clears throat> Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There's that word patience again. And then verse 2. This is all we need to know. Looking into Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. We don't need to be looking at everyone else around us and seeing how they're running their race. We don't need to be looking at others and seeing how they try to endure persecutions, sufferings, and tribulations. The only person that we need to look at is Jesus. And when during the seven last plagues, the, the plagues are being poured out upon Satan and his followers, and Satan is doing everything he can to get you to fall, your eye is fixed firmly on Jesus because now you can see the finish line. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. Slowly but surely, more and more, as you lead Satan away by the hand of God through his strength, you can see the finish line. You can see Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so when John 1.29 tells us to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That is our duty each and every day. Behold Jesus on the cross. Behold him in his humanity. Behold him as he walked on this earth. And then when Satan comes at you with his subtle temptations, your eyes will be fixed on Christ and he will show you how to walk. He will show you how to live. And so that is my challenge to each one of us today. <clears throat> that we would be so spiritually fit, that our eyes would be so firmly in tune with Christ, that just as Jesus said in John 14:30, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, that just as our quote said, so it may be with us. So that's my prayer, and I pray that we will be 
spiritually fit men and women for God. May Jesus come soon and may we be ready.